Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name's Theo, as Matt mentioned, if I haven't um, met you before. And uh, I actually lead a writer's group here at The Granary, and I just wanted to let you know about it because um, we're about to reconvene this year. And our writers group is called Cosmos, and uh, it's um, all about um, making something out of chaos. That's what we see ourselves doing as writers. And so it's a group where if you're a writer, you can be with other writers and um, talk about writing, talk about what it means to uh, write as a Christian and, uh, and to, um, to, to write in the presence of other writers. All right. Um, so if you're interested... Um, we're going to um, start uh, gathering on a Saturday morning, monthly, and, uh, and I'd like to hear from you. If you are a passionate writer, and that can be a creative writer, it can be an academic writer, um, but if that's you, then just send me uh, an email or send the church an email. But if you want to email, direct, email me directly, it's theo.rule at granary.org.au. So I thought I'd just um, do that whilst I have the microphone. Um, but that's not what I'm speaking about today. What I'm speaking about today is how to rebuild because we're doing this challenge at the moment called Foundations and we've been looking at the foundations of the church and the foundations of Christianity. And, uh, and I wanted to look at foundations today as the place where we begin when we are trying to rebuild because I believe that as a church we are um, in a place where we are needing to rebuild. And we're needing to rebuild because we've experienced a certain degree of decay and destruction. And um, I'm taking some of these ideas from Mark Sayer's book, The Disappearing Church, which some of you might have read. And I want to begin by just reading a passage or a little bit from the beginning of the book where Sayers writes that in the West we are witnessing a number of disappearances the ongoing disappearance of the Judeo-Christian worldview from Western culture, the disappearance of a large segment of believers who across the Western world are leaving churches, walking away from active faith or faith altogether during their young adult years, the disappearances of thousands of churches across the West as churches close or begin the process of winding down. And as the heavily represented builder and boomer generations within the church enter their twilight years and pass from this life, the disappearance of a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among many Western believers, and in its place, a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumerist framework. So Sayers wrote that in 2016, and I think that um, during the pandemic, the church has experienced even more of a decay and a a, uh, decline. I was at an online conference last year where John Mark Comer, who some of you will remember from Portland, was speaking, and he was just making the observation that in the 20th century, when there were global crises, you could always see that it would result in an increase of church attendance and that after there was some kind of calamity like that, that people would, would I guess, be asking the big questions and they would 
the return to church. You see the church numbers rise. But we just haven't seen that kind of return to church in the West. But I think that, we, we, you know, if we're looking full in the face of it, we can recognize that there's been a shift in our culture away from, from Christianity, away from faith, away from, from the church. And I, I think that we have a responsibility to look, look directly at that situation. And I think we can see it in our church. That's really what I want us to talk about today is, our, is, is this church, the granary. And uh, I think that since COVID, we can see fragmentation and weariness. Now, I know a lot of people feel that weariness in your homes and, and uh, in your families, and, and we can see an increase of doubt, and we can see people literally disappearing from being in church. I don't mean literally disappearing, but I, uh, there's been a little bit of that as well, I suppose. So that's why I want to read from Nehemiah today, because the story of Nehemiah takes place in Israel's history after the Babylonian exile, which if, you don't, if you're not up on the history, was the time when um, Babylon invaded Israel and took a whole lot of the Israelites into exile back to Babylon. And Nehemiah was an Israelite in such a situation, but he had um, over time worked his way up uh, the ranks in Babylon to become the king's cupbearer, which meant that he had the job of getting to drink the king's cup to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And the story comes in in chapter one where a group of um, Israelites have returned back to Israel to inspect the damage. And they return to Babylon, and, and it says in verse 3, Nehemiah's writing, and, and he says, They said to me, Things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This wasn't just about a wall, you know, this wasn't just about a physical wall, because the wall for cities like Jerusalem had incredible social and political and religious significance. So the wall lying in ruins was stood as a symbol for the Israelites of their inability to hold up their side of the covenant because God had foretold that if, if they were to continue to persist in their sin, that a neighboring empire would come in and would ransack them and would take them away. And that's exactly what happened. So the, the, the ruined state of Jerusalem lay there uh, as, a, as a reminder of, of Israel's failure and of their sin. And by the time of Nehemiah, the walls had been in, lying in ruin for over 100 years. And so we see this picture of a crumbled, disintegrated kingdom of God. And it's really important for us to pay attention to this story because not only can we, you know, can we see links in the condition between Israel at that point and the state of the community of believers today, but also we get a glorious image of how we can begin that process of rebuilding. And that's what I want to talk to us about today. And I think from this story, I can identify three main things that, that happen here through Nehemiah's leadership in terms of rebuilding, because I believe that we are going into a year of rebuilding as a church. And the first thing that Nehemiah does is he mourns the situation. He mourns the state of Israel. It says in one four, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days, I mourned. And of course, it would be very tempting for me doing a sermon at the beginning of the year in January to have a, a really kind of upbeat beginning and say, you know, isn't everything great? 
But that's very often not the biblical approach. The biblical approach is often to mourn and to lament and actually to look full in the face of the things which deep down we know are not as they should be. And I think that that's what we are called to. One of the main reasons that that's important is because it, it, it keeps us in touch with reality. You know, as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about Afghanistan. And last year when the Taliban retook control, it was on my mind a lot. I was thinking, you know, I was looking at the images of, of what was taking place over there and I was really concerned. And, uh, and there was a couple of weeks where I was thinking about it every day and I was compelled to give money to, this, to the crisis over there in Afghanistan. And I was really moved. But I was thinking about it as I was preparing the sermon. I was thinking, what is happening in Afghanistan? I've actually got no idea. In fact, I haven't really thought about it that much for a couple of months. And uh, you might be the same. And the reason is because we just haven't been hearing about it in the news. You know, the news is kind of really interested in it. And then we stop hearing about it. And so really, we stop thinking about it. So I don't really know. But it doesn't mean that the situation is necessarily any better for the people over there. It's just that we've stopped hearing about it. And because we stop hearing about it, it's very easy to stop caring about it. But when we mourn, we actually allow ourselves to sit in the reality of the devastation. And Nehemiah very easily could have decided, I'm not going to do that because I've got this cushy job high up here in Babylon. Things are pretty good for me. So I don't really want to hear this gloomy news about the wall being torn down in Israel and everything. Just don't sadden me with, 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 that, with that news. But he doesn't do that. He chooses to sit and to weep and to mourn. And when we mourn, it wards off apathy and it wards off delusion and it wards off inaction. Because when we mourn, we're actually connected with the father heart of God. Because when we look around our church and we see things which we know are not as they should be, actually God recognizes those things. And in fact, he cares far more deeply about those things than you or I do. In fact, it grieves him more than it grieves any one of us. And God is not delusional about these things. He's not apathetic about them and he's not inactive about them. So when we sit and mourn, it can actually draw us into that heart of God, like that Brooke Fraser song, Hosanna, which some of you will remember, which, used to, which said, or says, break my heart for what breaks yours. When we grieve over the state of the church, it, it connects us to the heart of God and it drives us to acts of faith. And, and the second thing is, so we mourn, but then the second thing is we pray. It says in verse five, Lord, the God of heaven, the great an awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. If we allow ourselves to mourn, then we will be driven to pray. You know, if we don't, if we kind of go, I'm not going to look in the face of, of the things which aren't as they should be, then we're not, we're not compelled to pray. But when we look full in the face of it, then we go, I need to pray. And imagine if we had a church where all of its members were like Nehemiah, praying day and night for the future and the well-being of the, of the community of believers. Imagine if we had that kind of church and we're so grateful for the people in this church who are prayers like that. But imagine if you could be that person who would pray day and night for the future and the well-being of the church. 
what would happen in this place. He prays in verse 11, O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. And so Nehemiah goes to the king and he asks the king not only if he can return to Jerusalem, but if he can go with the king's blessing so that he can have a rite of passage back to Jerusalem and have provisions to help rebuild the wall. Now, we have to understand this is quite an audacious request because in asking the king if he can do that and rebuild the wall could potentially be taken as quite an affront to the king's authority because he's trying to rebuild uh, you know, the kingdom which, which Babylon was responsible for destroying. So it was an audacious request, but you can make requests like that when you become a person of prayer. Until you become a person of prayer, you are able to do things within your own strength. And in a church like this, we've got a lot of talented, creative, intelligent people. We can do a lot by our own strength. But when we begin to pray, we are able to dare to believe for the impossible, for the miraculous, and to step out in faith beyond ourselves into those things. And that is the kind of church that we have. You know, in the very early days of the granary, you, you may or may not know that when it was very small, there was a small um, community of people here meeting between homes and, uh, and different venues without a, a building of our own. And there were people who believed in the vision and the cause of the church and said, we need a building. And so there were 10 families that put their houses on the line to go guarantor to make make sure that we could get a loan and, and get a building. Now, that was very risky because if it all went pear-shaped, they could have lost their homes. But they had that level of faith because they were people of prayer, praying day and night for the future and well-being of the church. And they thought, why not? Because I believe, you know, I'm, I'm stepping beyond myself into the realm of the impossible because I'm doing it no longer on my own, but with God. And sure enough for Nehemiah, the king granted these requests. It says in verse 8 of chapter 2, because the gracious hand of God was upon him. And he returns to Jerusalem. And the first thing that he does when he gets there, he doesn't celebrate, have a party. You know, he got, hops on his donkey and he rides around the perimeter of the city and ex- inspects the damage. And he doesn't tell anyone else that he's going to do this. He does it at night because he, he, he recognizes the affront that it could be. But it says in 2 verse 16, He says, I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And so what we, the image that we get here, you, you know, there's, these, there's some Israelites who um, had been remnants from before the exile and there are others who had already returned from Babylon. But these people are living amongst the ruins and they have not started a rebuilding process. These people are living among the ruins and, and presumably not doing what Nehemiah is doing, which is taking the time to actually go around and look full in the face of the damage that has taken place. And I think that one of the reasons that they weren't doing that is because Jerusalem was surrounded by these critics, these people, as we see in the story, who were gloaters, who were, who were scoffing at the destruction of the place. So you can imagine that morale was down. So these people were 
resolved to, to, do, to be back in the city, but just to live in a state of destruction and not do anything. But it took a person of faith like me, Nehemiah to come along and to say that the gracious hand of God was with him. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. You know, sometimes all it takes is one person who's willing to look in the eye of the destruction with faith and the intention of restoration for everyone else to start to get on board. And I want to encourage you to be that person, to look full in the face of, of the destruction, but not to be one of the, the critics who only wants to gloat in the destruction and, and, and to be cynical, but to be someone who looks full in the face and to go, here's a place for God to begin that rebuilding process. And just watch as people around you start to get on board with what's happening. And that's exactly what happens in chapter three. And I'd love to encourage you to, if you get to make time to go and read the story of Nehemiah. But in chapter three, we get an image of all of these people who were there, you know, who were just sitting there amongst the destruction, suddenly now rise up to begin this process of rebuilding. And it's an elaborate description of this person who works on this part of the wall and this family who are next to them working on this part of the gate here and this person and his son and and everyone comes together and plays their part. They don't sit back and wait for Nehemiah to do it. They all take the responsibility to play their part in the restoration process. In this book, Sayers doesn't just give a, uh, you know, a depressing overview of the state of the church. He actually gives a, a, a vision of what the church needs to become in the 21st century. And he describes us as needing to become a creative minority. That's how we need to see ourselves as a creative minority minority. And, and I'll just read a little bit of what he says uh, about creative minorities. He writes that researcher Margaret Wheatley discovered that even in the most dysfunctional and toxic of workplaces and environments, and some of you will know what that is like, a certain kind of person and leader could be found. Is this you? These people were not affected by their environments. Wheatley noted that their ability to thrive in caustic environments was linked to their ability to find a sense of meaning outside of their environment. Creative minorities, therefore, not only survive, but learn to thrive in hostile environments. In a caustic, corrosive third culture, which causes us to question and doubt our commitments, we need extremophile disciples, disciples who are resilient. In, a in the third culture, relevance must be matched by resilience. Deep roots and foundations will ensure resilience. For as Psalm 1 verse 3 reminds us, the faithful believer is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's the kind of creative minority, the kind of community that God is calling us into. And we can see a, a picture of it here in um, Nehemiah 3. But the critics don't go away. They stay there and they continue their work of destruction. And in 4 verse 1, Sanballat, one of the main critics, was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think that they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite 
who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. So as we start this process of rebuilding, we will have critics around us and even amongst us. That's inevitable. But what isn't inevitable is our response. And remember, you are not called to be a destroyer. That is not you. That's not who you are. You are called to be a rebuilder. That is the the nature of God. And we see Nehemiah's response in 4.14. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is important. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. Which brings me to the third point is that in order to build, we must mourn, we must pray. But the third thing is, is that we need to protect one another. We are never going to rebuild unless we take on the responsibility of protecting one another. because. If one part of the wall was compromised, and the whole wall is compromised, no good having one part be destroyed. You know, they could have said, I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing over here, stay in my own lane. I don't care if this guy gets an arrow to the skull. That's no good. They understand that they need to protect one another and work together in order for the work to be completed. And that's the spirit that God calls you and I to have, to do our work, but also to take on the responsibility for protecting one another, not to stand back apathetically whilst we watch other people be denigrated and destroyed, um, and even to sort of enjoy watching it happen, but to fight for one another, fight for our Christian brothers and sisters, and take on the responsibility for holding each other up and, and protecting one another. The critics go on. In 6 verse 2, Sambalat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? And four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. You don't waste your time. See, Nehemiah doesn't waste his time with people who only want to bring him down (laughs) and bring things down and want to bring about harm. Now, I'm not saying that we don't, as believers, listen to criticism. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we only listen to criticism from people who we know want the best for us and for the church. We need to find that distinction between criticism, which is about conviction, because the Holy Spirit wants to convict you and I to become more and more like him. But then there's also a kind of criticism which only seeks to condemn. And condemnation is not about change. It's actually about keeping you where you are. And that is the spirit of the enemy which comes to steal and kill and destroy. And we've got to have that discernment to to go, is there any evidence that this criticism is coming from somebody who wants to build me up? Because if there's not, then we need to have the attitude of Nehemiah which says, why should I stop working to come and meet with you? But the critics go on. They then resort, when he won't come out, they resort to rumours. 
And rumors are always the tool of the enemy. They say that there's rumors going around the nations questioning Nehemiah's intentions. But how does Nehemiah respond? Let's take a look. In 6 verse 8, he replies, There is no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued with even greater determination. We give power to rumors when we allow ourselves to become affected by them. We need to have the attitude of Nehemiah, which says, you know, he could easily have been like, all right, I'm going to stop and go back. This will just become too hard. I'm going to go back to to, um, Babylon. But he doesn't do that. He continues the work with greater determination and the rumors, well, let's see what happens. In 6.15, on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we'd begun. And when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. And they realized, and this is the most important part, that this work had been done with the help of our God. The speed in which the wall was, was constructed, 52 days, was a sign that the hand of God had been upon them. And that's why we need to just continue that work with determination because critics will come and critics will go, but the children of God are playing a long game because we are like that tree in, in the Psalms, which is planted by streams of water. And we, we play the long game. And, and, and if we continue to work faithfully, then people will stand back and recognize that the hand of God has been upon our ministry. In chapters 8 to 12, we see that the wall is, is completed and, and, and that there's a, a celebration with a seven-day public reading of Scripture and then a festive meal. And, and everybody comes out, all the Israelites come out to confess their sins. And then the wall is dedicated with songs of thanksgiving made with singers and cymbals and harps and lyres. And it says in 1243 that many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. And this is a beautiful image that we should be aspiring to, to be a community of joy and not just happiness or fun, but a community of deep-rooted joy that can be heard far away, that people can look and see there's a community of people who are filled with something else, who have got that radically different X factor, something else. And it would be so lovely if the book of Nehemiah ended on that verse. In chapter 13, Nehemiah goes to Babylon and he returns and this is what he discovers. The temple was not being used properly. The priests were not being allotted their prescribed portions of food. The worship singers had all left and returned to their fields to work. Some men were working on the Sabbath and others had married foreign women as God had told them not to. It says in verse, chapter 13, verse 24, furthermore, half the children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them, Nehemiah says, and I called down curses on them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. This is how the book of Nehemiah ends. And uh, you're kind of left going, what? And as I was preparing for this, I, I, I went to the Bible Project for help. And you should check out the Bible Project if you haven't already. And they, they've got a great insight. And they said, even though Israel is back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. The political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of the heart. That's what's going on here. 
What God's people need is a holistic trans- transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. The Nehemiah was able to rebuild the wall, but it wasn't able to get to the core issue of the heart. But we can see in Scripture that before Nehemiah, 70 years before Nehemiah, there was Zechariah. And Zechariah prophesied about a different kind of wall. In Zechariah 2.5, Zechariah is speaking on behalf of God. And he says, Then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, and I will be the glory inside the city. What Israel was really looking forward to was a time when God would be the wall of protection around the city and the glory inside. And that comes to fruition in the person of Jesus, who in Matthew 23, 37 looked at Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. See, Jesus looks at the the failings in, in the community of believers and the things which aren't as they should be, and he doesn't scoff and he doesn't become cynical, even though if anyone had the right to be, it would have been him. But instead, he allows himself to be that one who is torn down. You know, he's the only one who, who held up his side of the, of the covenantal bargain with God, and yet he allows himself to be the one who is torn down and destroyed so that we would no longer have to be, so that he could become that wall of protection around us and that his spirit could become the glory inside each and every one of us. It reminds me of the song Christ Be All Around Me by all sons and daughters, and I just want to read some of the lyrics to finish. So just listen to these words. As I go, hand of God, my defense by my side, and as I rest, breath of God, fall upon, bring me peace. Above and below me, before and behind me, in every eye that sees me, Christ be all around me. Let's pray. Dear God, I just, I want to ask this morning that all of us here would be united by nothing other than the fact that we need you to be our protection. We are like those little chicks that need to be protected by its mother hen. So God, might there be that spirit of mourning, mourning the things which we, the areas in which we fail as a church. May we have a spirit to pray and to long for things to be made right. And finally, God, I ask that we would not only protect one another, but that we would see you as our ultimate protector who draws us in together as vulnerable little chickens needing your protection around us, your spirit within us, and God, your glory above us, leading us onwards and upwards as we rebuild this year as a church, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Take some time now to consider what really stood out to you in that message. God has been speaking to you. What is it that he said to you? If you're in the room with someone else, turn and share with them what stood out to you. And I say to them, how can I pray for you? Share with them something that you love about God and something that you're thankful for this week. Or phone someone and ask them those questions. What do you love about God? What are you thankful for this week? And how can I pray for you? Bless you and have a great week.